All right. So we are here with many items of news, including the Helium Network. But we're starting with Irvin with SHA-256. This uh, website is a fun little site to use to teach people how uh, SHA-256 works. Put in any text that you want and uh, hit play and watch it work as it tries to explain to you how the uh, how that hashing system works. Pretty fun. Pretty cool. So how does SAW 256 work? I don't know. I hate math, but I like that. <laughs> but I like that it shows you the the step by step and and all the all the math behind it. But me, myself and I, I hate math. Well, you join most of our students that way. They all uh, hide from the math. I mean, we have computers in front. These are massive calculators. Why do I have to do math? Well, math is good for you. Meh. So is suffering, but I'm I'm okay with going away from either. You're missing you're missing out. All right. Eh, I don't think so. Well, Alan has got a vaccine. Yes, more depressing Omicron variant news and COVID news. A very small study involving macaques has been run using a Moderna Omicron specific vaccine. And the results are not encouraging at all. Um, the Omicron variant specific vaccine provided no more protection than just the regular, regular old original version of the vaccine. Well, yeah, but the original one protects you from hospitalization and death. So that's not nothing. Well, it's not nothing. That's true. And so that's a great thing because apparently we can just continue using the original version. But there are a couple of bad uh, takeaways from this, if you will. Um, first of all, um, if Omicron is, if this new vaccine doesn't really work against Omicron, that means it will continue to spread. And so people just won't have enough neutralizing antibodies that really are effective against Omicron, which means that uh, people who are vaccinated will get infected and will then go on to infect others, meaning that there will be no end of infections. Well, it's falling down apparently, which is well, it, sort it's of already puzzling. Peaked. It's already peaked. Yes. So but why does it, it fall down? Apparently infection must convey at least, I mean, that, the other study I showed said, I saw said that Omicron does not even give you immunity against Omicron. You can catch it again. Right. But it's falling. So there must be some effect. Well, that's absolutely right. Although you have to keep in mind that there are many confounding factors, including that people simply are not going out as much now as they did in the past before the pandemic. So people have modified their behaviors, even if official policy isn't dictating that people. Yeah, but not within the last four weeks, they haven't modified it. Well, if you look at the Google, um, I forget what they call it, the Google tracking uh, COVID-19 pandemic Mm -hmm. activity monitor, uh, you'll see that in many counties, uh, people's activity is way down. Uh, if you compare like uh, activity at work or activity at entertainment venues versus pre-pandemic levels, it's off by 20, 30, 40%, depending well, I on- I would think location. even more, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I interestingly see the reverse. The last Three weeks, well, beginning first three weeks of January, there was a, a definitely dip in people out and about. But the last two weeks, there's been a surge of people out and about. 
I think a lot of people are just had it with COVID and they're going back to normal life. I'm not among them, but I think a lot of people are. Well, that's certainly true, but I don't think we should necessarily count on vaccines saving us because that's what this very admittedly very very tiny study shows and and by the way by tiny i mean i think they inoculated seven macaques yeah yeah but i mean seven individual animals so just a tiny tiny little study but (coughs) um macaques are probably the the closest relatives to humans when it comes to this type of trial Um, i mean i think the point is the same thing happened with delta there's the variant specific vaccine was no better than the original that's right. And also yeah. beta. Yeah. So, so the idea of making a new vaccine for each variant turns out not to be worth the bother. Yes. And, uh, and, and, and as, you know, part of the vaccine hesitancy comes from this irritating fact that even if you get the vaccine, you can still spread it. So yes. you don't really and, get and back so to your far, normal life. So yeah. far, we've been okay with just the original wild type vaccine. But uh, the uh, coronavirus continues to evolve and mutate. And Omicron already has evolved further than any other past variant, and significantly so. Yeah. So at some point, you have to wonder um, if the, the, the virus simply evolves completely uh, and, and escapes um, the, the vaccines completely. Yeah, well, uh, that's true. Well, I'm... I have a conspiracy theory for this now. Oh, what? Well, let's hear it. We need to get kicked off. Right? You know, yeah, no, no, no. Don't call it conspiracy theory. Call it a scientifically um, in, in need of validation theory. Yeah, what if, what if coronavirus is just a, a new form of birds aren't real? It's all nanobots from the government. Oh, well, that actually, that's been around for a long time. That it's some kind of intentional attack. Um, you, you heard it here first, folks. The coronavirus well, is an intentional attack. Oh, I heard that from, from my source of conspiracy theories years ago, that it's all a plot to wipe out all the people so the rich can get richer because they don't need the slaves anymore. That's there been around go. for a while. There we go. Okay, now YouTube's going to keep our video up forever. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right, because that's what they like. What they don't like is these Allen-type scientific things. They kick us off right. for that. All right, so I've got helium, which... Um, this is actually what I thought IOTA was going to be. This is crypto actually doing something. So the idea is you can get a, a Wi-Fi hotspot, but the helium hotspot costs $500 and goes hundreds of times further than normal Wi-Fi. So you can put it up and I guess cover like miles of range. And they, if you do, everybody can use peer-to-peer networking with decentralized to get some traffic through. And this is what the Lime scooters use. You know, you jump in your scooter on the street and it somehow has to signal where it is back home. And it's also what the new smart mouse traps use. That's what the world needs, smart mouse traps. And anyway, the point is this is making an alternative internet without any central points. And um, you are now motivated because your Helium hotspot rewards you as people use it with Helium cryptocurrency. And they say you can actually make money by putting one of these things up if you're in an area where enough people use it. And uh, it is an example of cryptocurrency actually serving some kind of purpose. And this is what people said in the early days of cryptocurrency is that if you could get micro payments, it would be an alternative to the ad supported internet. You could pay like one tenth of a cent to view a page or something. And uh, it is possible to do that with crypto, although very few of these actual productive applications appear to have occurred. So. That's interesting. I'd like to know uh, what protocol this is and 
how it can go so far and such. It must be a different uh, wavelength of radio, I guess. Well, I mean, there's um, LoRa, which runs at like 900 megahertz, which is the new you know mesh networking hotness standard. Um, but yeah, the, the thing, yeah. what? Does that go much further? Well, it's for mesh networking. So if you want to set up like just a whole bunch of like LoRa spots around to like get vast coverage, you can do that. Well, this one's uh, supposedly one hotspot goes 200 times further than Wi-Fi. Yeah, the problem with that is that the FCC is going to get involved if you start setting up radio towers like that all over the place. So I don't know what they mean by it goes so far. I know. I'd like to know how that works. Anyway, um, that's a fun one. And then we've got, uh, Caitlin has got, oh, uh, digital misinformation. Digital misinformation. Yes, that is a big thing going on right now. So ZDNet has a article written by Campbell Kwan. And it's talking about how the Labor Party wants to uh, introduce a new program for children that teaches them how to identify misinformation on the internet. And this is basically media literacy, particularly for you know, the 21st century, which is fantastic. And I support this 120% because children, one of, the, one of the big problems that I've noticed is adults, not just children, adults have a very hard time understanding where news comes from, where information comes from, who you should trust. Why is this news source trustworthy? Why is it not trustworthy? They don't even look at that. Is they, they see. No, I thought it was very simple. You just listen to Joe Rogan and everything he says is true. Well, that's one way of working it. Yes. Um, but the other way of, of, of looking at it is that you could become adept at figuring out, you know, who wrote articles, why did they write the articles? And you'll notice like every time on our podcast, I'm always careful about where it comes from, who wrote it, you know, and, and like I can tell you right now, like ZDNet is a, you know, for-profit um, news agency. You know, well, yeah, news agency. And, and they're trying to just get clicks and news stories on it. And, and Campbell Kwan is being paid to, to put this up. Uh, but he's not being paid by... They think ZDNet also does a lot of product reviews and they get free products and stuff. Right, right, exactly. Advertising agency. Yeah, yeah, they're they're serving advertising. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so, you know, I I understand that there's going to be sort of a a capitalist bent towards an article. In this case, there's not really a capitalist component, you know. Uh, But, you know, having that sort of media literacy to understand where things are coming from, why they're being made, why they're being put out. Is there an agenda, you know, behind what these people are doing is really important because I've noticed a lot of adults, smart, intelligent adults who are just completely media illiterate, falling for conspiracy theories left and right and teaching children from a young age to identify um, you know, false information on the internet is a great way to not only protect them from you know, scams, uh, cults, um, just general getting brainwashed, uh, but also it, it protects the, the country as a whole. So England and it's, you know, democratic process uh, because of course, a lot of country, a lot of outside influences come into other countries and start spreading misinformation on social media and being able to identify that protects the political process as well. So I am so in, in favor of this. And if we could get this over here in the United States, I would be head over heels. Caitlin, these smart Americans that you're talking about, they're not that who are falling for misinformation. They're not Republicans, are they? Actually, I've noticed that uh, both sides can fall for misinformation. 
Um, this is not necessarily a left wing or right wing issue, but I have noticed in particular um, that there are a lot of right wing news agencies uh, that pretend to give an air of authenticity um, in order to pander or you know, make themselves seem uh, more credible than they really should be. Um, and the, the, I have seen left-wing news agencies too. Like if you look at the, the Young Turks, like all they do is spout off, um, you know, their, their opinions all day long, but they do so in a, you know, kind of a news studio for some reason. And that's of course, to give them an air of authenticity. Who's that? Uh, the Young Turks. Oh, the Young Turks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're, yeah, they're, they're a left-wing. Much, uh, yeah, they're pretty much flaming left uh, propaganda. Yeah, yeah, but but they still they still use a bunch of the tricks used to that I've seen on the right to to try to make themselves seem like a legitimate news agency when they are in fact not a legitimate news well, agency. You know? Yes, although I, I I must say it might have been at some time in the past that the right and left were essentially equal, but right now since Donald Trump, the right is much more insane, just denying what they absolutely said, contradicting obvious facts. You know, they've they've uh, ramped up the disinformation by a large factor, much more than right. the left lately. Right. I mean, and then, right. And, and in particular with disinformation, I think you're right. I think that in terms of outright lies, outright creating fabrications, um, sort of the right media has a <laughs> monopoly on that at the moment. Um, that's not to say that there aren't left-leaning uh, media outlets that are, you know, propagandizing, you know, left-leaning talking points, but being able to identify those is really important. And once you identify them, it's much safer to ingest them, right? Like, like you can go onto Fox News and you realize that like Fox News, for example, has this very pro-Republican agenda. You can watch them and not get brainwashed, but all of us with like elderly family members who have been sort of pulled into the cult of like Fox News and One American Network knows that if you lack the media literacy to sort of identify what's going on, what you're being presented with, um, it can it can be a rabbit hole. Oh yeah. All right. Anyway, so then we've got uh, Urban has got oh the IRS doing the right thing. The right thing. It'd be nice if they just disappeared. But anyway, um, after much backlash on their plan to do facial recognition in order to file your taxes and access all that, they're going to relent and stop that. It was not only them doing facial recognition, it was them picking some third party you had to send your face to. Yeah. People, I think, very sensibly said, this is really messed up. Yep, yep, yep. Especially since all the major players have abandoned facial recognition like Microsoft, they've all discovered that it really doesn't work. And all it does is create god-awful lawsuits as it mm -hmm. constantly identifies the wrong person. Yep. So they, they finally uh, straightened themselves out. So that's good news. Yeah, that's good. And Alan's got one uh, about buy NVIDIA buying ARM. Yeah, you know, we don't talk about business all the time, but it does have huge consequences for the future of technology. And this, one, this deal, a proposed sale of ARM holdings to NVIDIA would have really shaken um, manufacturing, silicon manufacturing to its core. That deal is now off the companies have decided to break up their talks. And um, well, it's, it's a good thing, it's a bad thing. Uh, from an anti-competitive standpoint, it's definitely a good thing because had the deal gone through, um, 
NVIDIA would have controlled quite a lot of the market. Um, they're the dominant player in GPUs. And then thanks to the rise of risk processors and ARM specifically, um, the NVIDIA then would have controlled um, a lot of data center processing power. Um, it does appear that ARM in particular is best positioned for the rise of AI. Um, they're much better positioned than Intel and AMD. So this would have been a huge merger. Uh, and as such, it was attracting a lot of criticism and a lot of scrutiny from regulators, both in the US and the EU. So there was a very good chance that regulators would have blocked the sale altogether or would have put really onerous restrictions on the terms of the merger. So the two companies just decided to call it off. And uh, what would have been a deal valued at about $66 billion now is worth nothing at all. But that's not the end of the story. It appears that SoftBank, the owner of Arm, is now talking about spinning it off as an IPO. And it's been a few years, but uh, Arm was previously an independent company when SoftBank bought it for about $32 billion hmm. um, and took it private. So it appears that it's going to be spun off once again, but as a much more valuable company, not as valuable as $66 billion, which would have been about uh, doubling SoftBank's initial investment, but still... Uh, it'll be worth more than $32 billion. Mm -hmm. All right. And uh, so then I thought, I'm surprised to see this. So Google Cloud is going to turn on a feature where it will scan your RAM and notice if you're running a crypto miner, because this is a huge problem. They say tons of cloud machines get infected with the crypto miners, and then they go on a local network and infect all your other machines. So even your machines that are not directly connected to the internet will get infected and they're tired of their CPU and RAM being wasted on crypto miners. So they're adding virtual machine threat detection currently as an optional feature to your virtual machines, but they say it's probably going to become standard pretty soon because I've certainly seen plenty of my cloud machines get infected by crypto miners. It happens a lot. So I think this is a step forward. So are they going to shut it down when it happens? Are they going to stop the process when it happens? Like well, what, what's the concept? Currently, currently they do. Um, I've had plenty get shut down on all the cloud services when they get infected, but apparently some infections are not getting automatically shut down. And I don't know. That's a good question. What to do when it's detected. I suppose since you're controlling it, you can configure what it'll do when it's detected. The, I wonder if, if they're, if they're going to have like a backend root access. Well, they always do have backend root access. All the cloud services I know have like an emergency password recovery, except Azure, where it's essentially impossible. I know you can at DigitalOcean. You can do a back, a password recovery. I'm not sure about Google, but the DigitalOcean has backdoor root access to all your machines. Anyway, so uh, Caitlin has got NanoWire. So what is NanoWire? Yeah, NanoWire. So this is really interesting. So uh, HZDR, the, this stands for, um, it's a German, this is a press release from a, a German corporation. Mm -hmm. um, it looks German. Helmholtz Zentrum Dresden Rosendorf. 
<laughs> I would say that sounds kind of German. Yeah, it does sound kind of German. Uh, so, so this is a, a press release, and they're talking about um, nanowires and what they're developing with with nanowires. So, keep in mind this is this is a press release, so they're putting a a big spin on on this. You know, nanowires. This may not be a, as big as as they are claiming. We'll have to see from a non biased source. They, of course, they're going to say that these are are the best things ever, but it ha- they have published um, their, their findings, uh, for peer review. So what's going on? What's a, what's a nanowire? Well, it turns out if you take gallium arsenide, you turn into a very thin wire and add a bunch of tension to it. You require, how do I put this effectively? And this is the way that the article puts it effectively, the electrons lose mass. Uh, meaning that they, you can start the flow of electrons with less energy effectively. Um, I, I, I say effectively, <laughs> okay. <laughs> like they're not actually like becoming like, you know, less massive electrons. Um, they just affect, but the idea is that supposedly the electrons in the wire um, can get going faster with less energy. Um, and now I do want to point out at this point there is a common misconception in electricity that electricity is it's a bunch of electrons going in a circle in a circuit and that's electricity and that's not electricity at all. Uh, those electrons going around in a circuit is what creates electricity, um, but it's not electricity in and of itself, right? So what happens is that you have these you know, positive nuclei of atoms and these negative electrons and then when the electrons start flowing and they flow at usually a very slow rate, the electron drift is very slow. They just sort of creep along the wire. And, but the effects of relativity um, affect what's going on. So to the electron, it looks like the, the positive nucleus has shrunk. And so there's a differential electric charge, a differential charge, I should say. And from the point of view of the protons, it looks like the electron has shrunk because of length contraction, uh, length, length contraction. And so once again, it looks like there's a uh, charge differential um, between the positive nucleus and the electron. And that's what electricity is. So it's- that explanation sounds totally bogus to me. <laughs> that is one of the things that really takes a while to understand, to get over with the electricity. Because if you, if you work on, on diagrams, Traditionally, you look at, you, you sort of run the circuit from positive to negative, and that works perfectly well. That's a great idea. Um, that's, the, that's the conventional current you know, design method that we use when we're designing circuits. However, if you look at where the electrons are actually flowing in the circuit, they're flowing from negative to positive. So they're flowing out the negative end of the battery to the positive yeah, end. Um, and... Um, so why aren't we like measuring electricity that way from the negative of the, of the, um, of the battery to the positive end of the battery. And the reason why that is, is because that flow of electrons is not electricity in and of itself. It's what's creating the electric field. And that electric field, um, is, is what you're, is what we consider electricity. So you're creating fields around the wires and those fields essentially create something called a pointing vector and a pointing vector is the direction in which you know energy flows in the wire and so you can you know model the model the the, the conventional current from positive to negative because you're working with electricity not a flow of electrons 
So, so what's the advantage of these nanowires? They're like okay. So yeah, back to the nanowires. Back to the nanowires. Uh, so the idea is that because it is it is easier to get the electrons moving and creating those electric forces, I assume that means that they um, it, it requires they can switch on and off faster. So you get faster chips, right? So you can speed okay. things up significantly. You put those in in microtechnology, you get these nanowires in. Uh, you can create faster transistors. So they'll put these things on circuit boards, I guess. Uh, well, not on circuit board, in like silicon chips, or I should say gallium arsenide chips. Oh, inside the chip. Right, inside the chip. It's like oh. a substrate layer. So they'll go a really short distance. They'll go very short distance. These are nanowires. They're, they're going to break really easily. The only issue, and this is what I thought um, when I first read this, is that they're going to create a bunch of capacitance uh, if you put them near each other. Oh, and the article does mention this. They don't use the word capacitance, but they say like, oh, they're going to leak information to each other. Like, yeah, no, that's capacitance. They're, they're gonna, yeah. You know, you, you, you have these like bare wires that supposedly handle a bunch of current really quickly, go up and down in current really quickly. You're going to create a bunch of capacitance. You put them close to each other and these are nanowires. So they're going to be very close to each other. So they're going so to have one of the big shielding between them or something. Yeah, they'll have to figure out how, how to get them close to each other um, uh, and, and not have, you know, the capacitance you know, ruin your, your circuit design, which is a huge issue when you're working on things this small, mm -hmm. um, having signals leak from one component to the next. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, Moore's law is still holding true. We're, you know, people are still finding innovative ways to shrink and make circuits faster. So here we go. Supposedly nanowires are going to make things even better. Yay. Well, good, good. All right. Well, Irvin's got a new class for our, our schools. Um, a new class, more like a program that Google's rolling out, uh, where the Acers and the Lenovo's uh, can get fixed by the students. Sounds good. I think sounds good. Great to wait, wait to introduce uh, A plus stuff. Yeah. And uh, get the students some experience. Yeah, repairing broken computers is a classic uh, beginning computer class. Yeah. Yeah, good. And Alan has got Amazon's toll road. What's this? Well, it's a report from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And it's down, apparently. Anyway, go ahead. Oh, it is. Oh, well. It seems to be down, anyway. Uh, at any rate, they have a very interesting report that was released um, actually at the beginning of December of 2021. So this is a bit old, but this didn't get a lot of attention. At least I didn't see it. And it's quite a revelation, at least in my eyes. According to this uh, report by the ILSR, um, the most profitable operation at Amazon is not AWS, but is in fact the marketplace and the Amazon marketplace, retail marketplace. And it's not from the sales of products, it's from collecting fees from companies that want to place their products on Amazon. So like running one edge. Uh, among other things, yes. And so there are actually multiple streams of revenue for Amazon here. First of all, uh, a company that wants to participate in this needs to pay to Amazon. They need to pay a cut of their sales, right. which can be up to 35% of the retail price. Uh, and then they also need to pay, effectively, they need to pay the, for the advertising and the product placement on Amazon. In 2019, 
they were getting $60 billion in seller fees. This year, that's to say 2021, it's projected to be $121 billion, which is absolutely enormous. Mm -hmm. It really does underscore the power of Amazon's uh, retail platform and the fact that many would-be sellers have no choice but to list their products on Amazon. They really don't have any alternatives. And that is describing a monopoly. Yep. So that, this is what the uh, ILSR is arguing here is that this is such a, an enormous monopoly, such a powerful monopoly that uh, really it should be broken up. Amazon should be broken up into multiple separate companies. I've heard people say that, but I kind of doubt it can happen in our system where they bribe the lawmakers. Yeah, well, this is true. However, there are some lawmakers such as uh, Amy Klobuchar who have, and, and Elizabeth Warren, yeah. who have been very critical of Amazon and have more or less suggested breaking it up. Um, so there is some interest in some kind of regulatory action. But unfortunately, um, even though Amazon really does pass the smell test of a monopoly, there's a certain ideological dimension to this too. And um, my understanding is that since the 1970s, the definition of what constitutes a monopoly has changed. Um, this in part due to uh, some legal writings by Robert Bork, a very controversial uh, Supreme Court nom nominee, oh, yeah. Ronald Reagan. And what he said, what Bork said, was that monopolies should be defined as monopolies based on the cost to the consumer. Right. So if there is a monopoly, that is to say a single company that is in a dominant position, and that single company raises prices to the consumer, so the consumer ends up paying a lot more money, that's a monopoly. But if there's a single company that's in a dominant market position, however, the price to the consumers does not go up, then that is not a monopoly. And th this is what Bork argued, and this has actually come to be accepted um, in regulatory and economic theories that monopolies only exist if there's excessive cost to the consumer. Well, it does and, seem to make some sense. Uh, well, from a certain point of view, yes, but um, of course, consumers are not the only entity in the marketplace. And in this case, we have other companies that want to sell goods and they can't because of Amazon's market position, market dominance. But if you were to sweep in and break them up and the end result is the prices went up for the consumers, I don't think very many people would say thank you. Well, the question is, would they actually go up? Right. And I don't think that's at all clear or all, at all settled. Logically, uh, they the reason shouldn't. why Amazon's like able yeah. The reason why Amazon's able to keep these low prices is that, um, well, they're essentially dictating it themselves. Yeah. So Amazon, even though it's um, keeping costs down to consumers, it's taking money out of the pockets of the sellers. That's the issue. I suppose. I wonder if there's just a free market solution. I wonder if somebody else like Walgreens can just try competing with Amazon. Well, I mean, this is why there's government regulation, is that yeah. sometimes um, the free market isn't so free after all. Yeah. And it's very easy for companies to develop a, a dominant position in the market 
and then do everything in their power to maintain that dominance. And it's not necessarily because they're a better company or they're leaner, or more efficient or whatever. It's just that they're more ruthless or they got lucky. Um, and if you look at how the tech industry is structured today, we have a lot of monopolies. Uh, when it comes to retailing, Amazon is certainly approaching monopoly status. When you look at advertising, it's Google and Facebook. Well, I think there is a countervailing force naturally there, which is what Bill Gates said when they tried to break up Microsoft. So you don't need to break us up because we will just collapse pretty soon anyway, because tech keeps changing. We can't keep up and there's natural inertia. Once your company is big enough, it's not nimble enough to adapt to the new changes anymore. Well, there is some truth to that. And if you just look at the internal product development efforts at say Google and Facebook, they don't have stellar records at all. Yeah. But what they do have is cash. Yeah. And so what they have succeeded at doing is buying companies that show promise. Well, so that for works example, for a while, but then you eventually hit like Facebook. Facebook appears to have destroyed itself through their inability to innovate to where they've thrown everything behind the metaverse, which seems to be complete garbage. And, yeah, uh, and, and uh, Facebook has actually just for the first time ever seen a slight decline in the number of uh, active monthly users. Globally. And a huge loss in their market capitalization. So I think even the mightiest of them all, Facebook, does seem to be collapsing uh, just through its inability to innovate. Right. Um, although one could argue that Facebook was always uh, in a precarious position and was always... Uh, essentially predicated on a bad business model from the start. It just got lucky. Um, but there are, in fact, monopolies that are very durable. And um, you just look at the, the uh, antitrust efforts of the 1930s. Mm -hmm. Even if those companies, those, those companies that were dominant trusts back in the 20s um, would have eventually failed, they can do quite a lot of damage in the interim before they fail yeah and, right. and um they can when they do collapse they can cause real economic harm um, this of course was the big argument in 2009 as the banks were getting bailed out that they were too big to fail um, yeah. and that they were in an uh, uh, unreasonably dominant position to begin with and that that actually ended up weakening the american economy and global economy as a whole and if they'd never been allowed to reach such dominance in the first place, we never would have had the Great Recession. Well, that's um, interesting, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's a larger argument, of course, and it's one very contentious argument in economics, but it's also a highly ideological one uh, as evidenced yeah. by Robert Bork's uh, influential paper on the topic. So um, I'm sure this is not the end of what we'll be hearing about uh, tech monopolies. And yeah. There's some bipartisan interest in breaking up tech companies or at least reducing their influence on the part of Democrats because of concerns of monopolistic behavior and economic impacts. And then on the part of Republicans because of a misplaced perception that the social media platforms are quote unquote censoring free speech, quote unquote, free speech. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so they, they want uh, Twitter to be more like parlor or whatever. And then, Amazon would be their top target because of the Washington Post. Yeah, well, yes. 
except um, Amazon's probably more generous with its uh, campaign uh, donations. I don't know if it can possibly win back the love of Republicans after owning the Washington Post. Anyway. Oh, I'm sure they'll find a way to make it work. Maybe. Well, anyway, I've got, I found an article about Parkinson's that I was amazed at. Apparently, this is a well-known phenomenon among Parkinson's doctors. You know, people with Parkinson's lose the ability to move and they can't get after in later stages, they can't get out of a chair. And, and there's famous cases of guys in a wheelchair with Parkinson's. But when an emergency happens, like his toddler is about to fall down the stairs, he just gets up and rescues them. And they're aware of this. They call it the placebo effect. If you have a state of high emotion, they gain back all their mobility. And they have a video of a guy who has Parkinson's and can't even walk at all in a wheelchair, but he can ride a bicycle just fine. And when he gets off the bicycle, he can't walk anymore. And so they say there is apparently a second channel in the brain to control your motive, your, your, your motor neurons, which only takes effect in states of high emotion. And they just want to figure out how to like activate that more and, and read. So apparently this is amazing. It reminds me of that movie, I think Awakening, where there are these people who have been in like a coma for 20 years and they found a drug that wakes them up and they're perfectly fine for a few months and then they fall asleep again. But, you know, apparently the, the necessary hardware in their brain was not gone. It was just switched off. So this guy is trying to refine and uh, turn on this stuff called paradoxical kinesia, which is uh, pretty amazing. Anyway, and then uh, Caitlin has got the Large Hadron Collider. Yes. So in a while. Right. So we haven't heard about the Large Hadron Collider in a while. And unfortunately, I have sort of bad news uh, regarding the LHC and its use of GPUs. So SciTech Daily has an article written by by CERN. What? Okay. <laughs> um, apparently, this is a press release by CERN. Uh, so it's talking about uh, how CERN, the, the the people that run the Large Hadron Collider, are upgrading all their equipment to use a lot more GPUs. So we're already in a GPU shortage. We have Bitcoin and a bunch of crypto miners buying up all these GPUs and raising the prices and no one can get a GPU. And now a bunch of data centers need to buy up a bunch of GPUs as well. <laughs> so yeah, if you were hoping to get a GPU anytime soon, it's this is not gonna help. Um, and, and obviously the LHC needs those GPUs more than the average consumer needs them. So, I mean, if you had to choose between giving out GPUs to people to play games or using the GPUs for you know, scientific research, obviously scientific research is more important, but there's just such a shortage right now. Um, and I don't know when it's gonna end. This has been going on for well over a year um, and it's, it's stalling everything. It is like, yeah. Well, the flipping next year, Ethereum is going to quit using proof of work. That should free some of them up. That should hopefully free some of them up. Yeah. Uh, but as as we see, there's new um, there there are new sinkholes for GPUs to fall into. Um, That's true. Just, yeah, it's like at the LHC where they they need them for for research. So. Oh yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this one, and we'll be back on Friday. <laughs>